Hi, I wanted to ask if there was any way to guarantee that you act as a positive influence on horses that you don't own or train, because I work at two different stables, and one of which there is a horse that's extremely reactive and probably has ulcers, and he bit me the other night with, I guess probably because of trigger stacking, but I have no idea, and I didn't punish him or really react, but I want to make sure that I'm at least not a negative influence on his life and so I didn't know if you had any way to discuss the topic of how to make sure you're being as positively reinforcing as you can when the horse isn't yours to train. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Willing Equine Podcast. I'll be recording this episode in my car, so the audio may not be super clear, and sometimes I have my kids with me, so if you hear a little bit from them, I apologize, but hopefully you can still enjoy the podcast. I'd love to hear from you after you listen to the podcast, so feel free to comment on any of my social media platforms or email me or even send me an anchor voice message. This is such an interesting topic and a really great question because I know a lot of people work either at facilities where they are not in control of all the horses they work with. You know, maybe they, um, with the horses that they're working with, have to use negative reinforcement or train the way the trainer wants them to train. Um, just in, you know, there's other people that might work at summer camps or maybe you're running a boarding facility and not all the horses there are trained the way you want them to be trained. Um, there's so many possibilities. I know farriers and vets run across this all the time where they're having to handle a lot of different horses over the course of their day that they have no, um, really, a lot, they don't have any say or ability to help the horse or train the horse in any capacity just because of the limited situation that they're in. So this is a really great topic, um, and I'm really glad you asked it. Um, Unfortunately, because of the complexity of it, there's not going to be a straightforward answer. There never is, right? With horses, it's always always complicated, and it's always... um, you know, I don't know. There's always so many variables, but I'm going to do my best to give you some ideas of how you can have a positive interaction with the horse that's not your own and, you know, kind of be a highlight to that horse's day, especially if you repeat have um, situations with that horse. Like if you handle them on the regular basis, but not, but aren't necessarily training them, quote unquote training them, um, which if this is the case that you're handling them often, I do want to say that, you know, just like I've talked about in previous podcast episodes, we are always training. Uh, our horses are always learning. Horses that aren't even our own are learning from us, and um, they are always training us. So it's a it's a conversation that's always happening. So anytime you approach a horse, whether it's yours or not, you are having a conversation with that horse, and you may not understand the same language. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that the horse may have a certain history of people, you know, when they raise their hand, it means they're going to get smacked. Well, in your language, raising your hand means target it or something like that. So you may have different languages happening, which can create some confusion and frustration. And that is often um, the result of... Uh, 
uh, those one-time situations where you know you walk up to a horse you just want to pet it and then they get sour faced or um, they bite at you or they walk away or whatever because in their mind from their history from their learning experiences when a human walks up and does X, Y, or Z, it means something bad, and so they leave. So in their mind, from the language that they understand from people, um, you're predicting something bad to them. And in your mind, you just want to pet the horse and give it a carrot, right? <laughs> so we can have different... Um, so I'm trying to explain is to make sure that that analogy is clear in that you are both communicating all the time in every single interaction whether or not they're your horse or not and you can work very hard to have a positive interaction with that horse and you can be communicating in as best ways you know how how to in a positive way you can have a language that's positive and low stress and um, just mellow and patient and all that but you're going to be against the odds in some way because you don't know the language that that horse has been taught. You don't know their history. You don't know how they're generally interacted with. They don't know you. So they, you know, they're just operating off of what our history has taught them. And so there's going to be some miscommunications, (laughs) which is kind of the foundation here for, um, the very first thing I want to say when we're working with horses that are not our own, and we want to have that positive interaction right off the bat is going to be taking your time being very very patient and possibly having limited contact with that horse so and and not making assumptions so what this means is that you approach this horse very slowly you kind of carefully watch their body language and you respect that body language if the ears go back you stop if they turn their head away as a calming signal um, you need to stop whatever it is you're doing licking and chewing stop and in this, so I highly recommend the book, Language Signs and Calming Signals of Horses for this. I think every single horse person on the entire planet needs to read that book. Re, re, I don't care if you train with positive reinforcement or not. I mean, you can, I don't, I don't care. It doesn't matter what you train with. You need to read that book. Um, that is a, the Bible as, um, as far as I'm concerned right now, you know, there, there might be updated research that's coming and that's fine. I'm prepared to modify anything that I know now, uh, when I know more, when I know better. So we just know what we know for right now. And right now that that book is kind of the cutting edge as far as equine body language goes. And so everybody needs to be reading it. Um, I recommend all my students read it. I, it's something that I, I bring to all my clinics to show people. I'm like, you guys need to be reading this book. (laughs) It's like really important. But understanding equine body language is that first thing here because you're going to be able to approach this horse, even though you don't know this horse, and give them the respect that they deserve in regards to listening to what they have to say. So you're going to see that subtle head movement. You're going to see that that eye blink or the rapid blinking or the conflict ear so the ear side to side. Or you're going to see that displacement behavior of them rubbing their head on their foreleg or, um, you know, there, there's so many. The book has them all and has pictures and everything. So you're going to be able to see all that and you're going to respond to it as every human should be, but most won't. And immediately right off the bat, the horse is going to go, oh, you understand my language. That's what I'm talking about. And so right off the bat, you're going to be saying, yes, I have my, my 
way that I talk to horses and a way I move my body and the way that I communicate as far as my body moves and I speak and all that. And I'm going, you know, I might teach you some of those eventually in the future, but to begin with, I am going to listen to your language. I'm going to listen to what you have to say and I'm going to show you that I speak your language, okay? And I'm going to respect that and respond to it. And that right off the bat is a foundation that you can have for every horse you interact with, regardless of whether or not you're your own. You can hear that, see that, and respect it and modify what you're doing accordingly. So that's the first as far as establishing right um, right away that you're going to have a positive interaction with this horse. The next one is going to be to make sure that your own form of communication is very slow and patient and um, maybe you can't use positive reinforcement and that's fine um, and you maybe want to use negative reinforcement or you're required to use negative reinforcement with this horse and that's okay. That can be done in a very patient and very calm and very um, understanding way that respects the horse and respects their learning process and um, and I said I've said of respect a lot and I want to insert here real quick is when I'm using the word respect and you'll you know I'm sure anybody who follows me consistently um, and hears my stuff consistently understands that it's not, I don't use it in the same way that a lot of trainers use it I'm really honestly referring to the word respect as defined by human definition, and I use it um, in regards to how humans interact with animals versus how we expect an animal to interact with us. I don't think that horses can respect us in the way that that word is defined, uh, and it's something that's a human term it's a human way of being and acting and understanding something so while yes I firmly believe that you can teach a horse to have boundaries um, as far as you can say I do not want this horse to be within six inches of me yes you can teach that and you can teach it through positive reinforcement and that's fine you can teach the horse to be safe around you and to have certain behaviors you can teach them certain behaviors that will help you feel more comfortable and like they are um safer around you, but I don't ever refer to the word respect in the horse to human. Like I don't expect my horses to respect me, but I will say that I teach people to respect their horse and to respect that those horses need them to be patient with them and to understand their language and to um, teach them fairly. So just wanted to insert that in there as a little um, explanation for when I use the word respect, because I have used it quite a bit already in this episode. So when or if you have to use negative reinforcement when interacting with a horse um keeping in mind the idea of a shaping plan which is something that is commonly talked about in positive reinforcement training but is not commonly talked about in negative reinforcement training but applies across the board regardless of which which forms of operant conditioning you're using a shaping plan is um a process of obtaining a behavior, creating behavior, getting a behavior through incremental steps. So little, you know, steps of, in successive approximation. So little bits, you, you ask for a little bit, then you ask for a little bit more and you ask and you build up 
to the end behavior that you're looking for. And you set the horse up for success by only asking for what they can give at the, any given time and they're prepared for and ask for then for a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, and then usually this is prepared ahead of time, hence planning, so shaping plan. You're shaping the behavior that you're looking for through a planned process. And you can use this idea with negative reinforcement. And even with a horse that you are not familiar with or working with con uh, consistently, let's say you need to walk a horse from their stall to their pasture and you don't frequently work with this horse, maybe it's a new boarder, but you work in this boarding facility, you can say, okay, I need to walk this horse from point A to point B. Um, from what I understand, they do put on a halter and they do lead, but I don't know. So I'm going to walk into, you know, I'm going to walk up to the stall and I'm going to kind of observe this horse's body language, see what they have to say. And I'm going to, you know, take my time. And um, then I'm going to gently ask for them to put on the halter. And then I'm going to... Um, then I'm going to ask for just a couple steps and then maybe you give them a scratch on the neck. You know, that can be, you're, you're depending on how that behavior was trained, I can't say that then you're training with positive reinforcement because if that behavior is trained with negative reinforcement, it's still likely to be a negative reinforcement process that you're obtaining the behavior through. But you can add in positive aspects to that encounter. So you can add in a scratch on the neck. If the horse likes scratches, again, pay attention to their body language. Um, you can add in short little breaks. You can allow them to have a little bit of grass. Um, you can take it very, very slowly, let them stop and look around and inspect their surroundings, smell some poop. I mean, I know a lot of people get hung up on, I want to lead my horse from the pasture to the barn without stopping, without them, you know, going to smell the poop without them stopping to smell the roses. Um, but I don't, I don't follow this protocol. Um, I, especially when I have new horses in training, they will often be very nervous about their surroundings. They won't be familiar with our routine. And so they'll walk a few steps out of their pasture and then they'll kind of look around and they need to lift their head and kind of examine their surroundings. And I just wait, I just wait patiently for that. And, um, and then I will ask them, you know, in a few minutes or seconds or however long, uh, maybe 30 seconds, I'll ask them to take a few more steps, then we can stop and look around. And just being very patient and methodical about everything you're asking of the horse and giving them time to process. Technically, this isn't a shaping plan because you're not training that behavior, but you can still use a similar idea of allowing for steps and um, and, and allowing for time to process each step and taking things in baby steps. <laughs> so that's kind of number two. Number three is going to be about um, really trying to insert as much positivity and um, things that the horse likes and is comforted by into your interactions with that horse. Let's say you're a farrier and the horse moves around a lot and you're tempted, you know, you just, you need to get the job done and the horse is just really anxious and struggling with it, lifting up those back feet and you don't have time to train this horse. That's not your job. Um, you might suggest to the owner that they hang up a hay net. That is a lot better option Maybe the horse still moves around a little bit while they're eating their hay, but that is so much better than you hitting the horse or um, or having to take a really long time to do the trimming job. Like it, it'll cut your time down and it will create a new positive association with that experience that they get to eat hay while they get their feet done. Win-win for everybody. Um, like I mentioned before, adding in those little brief scratches while you're walking. Um, 
grazing breaks, so maybe your horse is struggling with walking to and from the barn, you can purposely make it, a, you know, that they get to stop and take grass along the way, or maybe you start preparing uh, maybe a little bit of alfalfa or something that they like, a little tiny bit of food in the pasture where they're going to or their stall that they're going to, so it's there waiting for them, and they'll start to learn, oh, if I just go back to the barn, there's food waiting for me, awesome, let's go. So you can create those positive associations with where you're going and what you're doing without technically having to use quote-unquote positive reinforcement and clicker training, um, but you can still make it a positive experience for the horse. The fourth one is going to be reducing the use of punishment. So punishment, and when I'm referring to punishment, I'm primarily talking about positive punishment, so the application of an aversive to suppress or decrease the likelihood of a behavior happening. So like you explained with the biting, um, the horse bites, you might smack it to make it stop, and the horse is less likely to bite in the future, theoretically. But this isn't always... Well, okay. Um, I'm, I'm also going to refer to negative punishment as well. I try very hard to avoid the uses of negative punishment in my training, but negative punishment is um, doesn't happen as often with traditional training because we're not, all of the training is already based off of the removal of, of an aversive, so negative reinforcement, whereas positive or um, negative punishment is based off the idea of removing an appetitive, so something desirable to the horse as a punisher. So it'd be more like, uh, well, in positive reinforcement training, this would be withholding treats, um, making the task too challenging for the horse uh, and so that they can't achieve it, so then they can't earn their click in food, so withholding the treat, Um, or ending a session abruptly or just stopping in the middle of a training session and talking to a friend and not giving the horse anything to do or something to earn and just like expecting them to understand that they're not getting any more food. These could all be instances of negative punishment showing up in that kind of training but it's much more challenging in negative reinforcement training because that would be moments of relief for the horse. The person just left, relief. So that's more negative reinforcement. Um, or the, ho- the person just stopped to take a chat with a friend, that's relief. So that's actually a positive thing for them. Um, anyway, so that was just kind of a quick little little terminology. Anyway, so... Um, So I'm specifically talking about positive punishment at the moment because that's more common when you're just interacting with the horse you don't know or with traditional training experience or whatever. So um, removing the uses of positive punishment and even in the most subtle forms. So positive punishment can also show up in something as simple as I'm leading a horse to the pasture and they're charging ahead and I pull back on the lead rope. That would be a positive punishment experience because... Um, because they were doing a behavior, something you didn't like, and you applied an aversive, which is pulling back on the halter and lead rope, to stop the pulling ahead. So that's a positive punishment experience. And this can show up in all kinds of subtle, variable ways. Like there's so many little ways that positive punishment can show up that people aren't even aware of. We get really hung up on the idea of like smacking the horse or hitting them as a positive punisher, but there are a lot of other ways. I've had horses where if I even pet them um, on their face after they've done something I like and I clicked and gave them food and then I pet them on their face, they consider that a positive punisher because they do not like being touched on the face. So they will, the behavior that was happening before that like let's say they touched a cone and I then I clicked food and then gave them a pet on the forehead and they didn't like the pet on the forehead 
the, beha the behavior of touching the cone is likely to decrease in fluency or you know consistency or it, it happening at all because they're trying to avoid being pet on the head. So that's positive punishment in action, even in a very, very subtle form. And this is, kind of loops back to number one of paying attention to body language. How do we know that something's a positive punisher to a horse? Um, the two ways to tell are going to be the horse's physical reaction in the moment. Did they appear to like it or not like it? Uh, did they put their ears back? Did they tighten up their nostrils? Did they pull their head away? Uh, stuff like that. And then the other way, which is the more scientific way, is did, does the behavior decrease, <clears throat> excuse me, does the behavior decrease over time that happens just before your action? So if I continue to pet her head, does the cone targeting stop over time? Like as a slow down and eventually stop? Well, then that would be a positive punisher. Or um, the flip side of that is it's just not reinforcing enough to cause the behavior to keep happening in the future. So it's kind of a combo. You need to pay attention to both. So if you can avoid using these things, you know, kind of paying attention to that horse's body language and really watching, you know, if I pet the horse here, does it like it? Does it not? Um, if I uh, pull back on the lead rope, does it appear to have a, um, an aversive effect on the horse? Most likely it will because he's pulling on the head. I don't know of anybody that would like their head being pulled on. Um, and, but, you know, they're going to, when you're in a traditional environment and a horse you don't know very well, there's going, I mean, I guarantee you, you're going to be put in a situation where you have to pull back on that lead rope. And I'm not saying you shouldn't all the time, but you should try and avoid it or be um, <clears throat> very, use as little as possible. So if I have a horse, I um, actually had a situation happen not long ago where I had a vet tech was handling one of my horses Actually, I don't think it was, it was a client's horse. And some, a lot of vet techs will be very patient with a horse that starts to move when they're trying to do x-rays. And uh, the horse wasn't sedated. And it was their feet. And um, my voice is going out for some reason. <clears throat> but uh, so most of the time they'll just kind of say, whoa, and they'll kind of gently, you know, give a little cue on the halter leader up to kind of suggest that if they continue to move, they're going to get more pressure on the halter leader up or a higher level of punishment for moving. Um, and they're very patient and maybe they'll start stroking the horse or something like that. That's good handling. That's patient and respectful to the horse to kind of communicate to them. You'd like them to stand still without escalating right off the, out the gate. Right. But I had this other situation, the vet take, the horse started to move and she popped him really hard on the halter and lead rope. Um, I don't know if she was concerned about somebody's safety. I'm not sure, but the horse, the poor thing, um, <clears throat> it was quite a terrifying thing for him because he hadn't had anything like that happen to him in a long time. And trust me, I was very upset about the situation. Um, this is when I tend to handle my own horses went during vet appointments, <laughs> um, or clients' horses, but you know, the horse immediately shut down and, and he stood perfectly still after that. But you could tell like ears back, head elevated, just like, oh my gosh, this person's going to smack me again if I don't stand still. And it was like terrified, like he froze. Um, and that obviously was not a positive experience for him. And he's much more likely to be worried about the vet and being stood on blocks and getting x-rays and all that in the future. Because last time he got a severe punishment during that experience that terrified him. So 
you know, trying to avoid situations like that where there's this huge reaction that puts the horse into fear and, and just a freeze or it causes a flight response or something like that or fight response, that biting that you explained in your question would be considered a, um, a fight response um, where he was aggressively, I'm not sure of the situation, but possibly he... Uh, felt threatened by your presence or uh, was worried about something causing pain and he was fighting back. He was defending himself and he was trying to communicate something. Which then brings me to my last point, which is being very aware of pain and pain causes and that behavior like that, like biting and pulling away and fidgeting and all these behavioral issues that we tend to say are behavioral issues um, or training issues, all a lot of times, like I would high percentage, probably in the 70 to 80% range are, um, maybe a little bit lower, but you know, high are often responses to pain. So there's a lot of times I get videos of people sending me, you know, my horse won't stand still in the cross ties. He, you know, he's grumpy while he's being tacked up. Like I can see the pain on the horse's face and I can see that all of this is the horse screaming at the people that they are in so much pain. They're trying so hard to keep it together um, and to avoid being punished for things, but that it's pain related. And obviously when they're not your own horse, you have limited, you know, abilities. You can't, you know, get a vet out. You can't change the saddle, but you might try and find opportunities to communicate to whoever's horse it is that maybe this is a pain reaction, maybe, you know, you know, and say it very nice and, um, suggestive and like, and like, you're still learning too kind of thing. You might say, Hey, you know what? I had a similar experience with the horse the other day uh, with one of my horses, you know, last month or something. And, um, you know, we went through all these things. We thought it was training and all this. And then we ended up talking to the saddle fitter and it was the saddle and I changed the saddle. Bam. Like all of it was gone. And he was perfect after that. So sharing personal stories like that and little like um, little analogies and, and things that analogies isn't the right word, but you get what I mean. Like little personal stories like that tend to be less threatening to people and less like, hey, I know what's up and you're being a bad owner, you know, because people don't want to be told that they're causing their horses pain. Nobody wants to cause their horse pain, at least not good horse people. And um and so it's very hard to swallow the idea that you have been causing your horse this pain for all this amount of time and that um, you've thought it was training and you've punished this horse repeatedly for something, that it's actually the horse telling them they're in pain. So for them to be able to accept that is very hard. So sharing a personal story where you've gone through a similar situation, even, I mean, I'm not telling you to lie, but you might <laughs> like maybe share it about a friend. I don't know, like collect stories that you can share with people. Um, Sometimes, you know, I will have a story with a horse from a client and I will pick and choose little bits of it that might be relative to that person that I'm talking to. You know, maybe that wasn't the whole story of what was going on. Maybe it wasn't just the saddle fit. Maybe there was also the osteo and the barefoot and there was training related stuff and trauma and all that. <clears throat> but for that particular client, maybe it was just relevant that they'd heard about the saddle um, or this person I'm talking to. So, um, you know, just coming up with personal relatable situations that might keep the person from not getting too defensive might be really helpful, especially if, you know, you work at a boarding facility and, or it's a friend's horse or, um, 
you know, where you're definitely not in a position where you can tell these people how to deal with their horse or what to do. You're not a trainer. You're not the horse's owner. You're not the farrier or another medical professional or something like that, you know. So there's there's different things. Um, there's different tiers of being able to have input. It's unfortunate, but it's just kind of how the world works. Um, so I find that being relatable, even from a professional standpoint, is super helpful. The vets, I love working with vets that are very like, hey, you know what? I had this other client that this is what we ended up going down this route. And it wasn't that, but it was this. And this helped this horse. I'm like, okay, let's do it. That is way more... Um, I don't even know what it just like makes me feel like that vet is really personally invested and is sharing their personal experience and um, versus just being like, we need to do this, this and this. And I think it's this and this is what the the papers say and all of this. And I'm like, which I'll still do because I trust my vet and I love my vet. But I do like when there's that touch, that personal touch in a very um, unthreatening way. So. Anyway, um, hopefully this gives you some ideas of how to interact with other horses in a positive way um, and kind of helps you feel more confident in how you're interacting with horses. And I definitely recommend that book. And, um, and you know, you're just going to have to kind of do the best you can. There's, there's only going to be so much you can do. So don't beat yourself up about it. If you, you know, if you can just make a little difference in that horse's life, you know, um, if you can just be a little bit of a little ray of sunshine for that horse, you've done, you've done good. So this is something that I've had to learn as well. Being, even being in the position I'm in, I don't have full control over my client's horses. I don't have, you know, I don't own every horse that's out there. People come to me all the time looking for advice and help and everything. And it just hurts me so deep to the soul sometimes when, I see what I would do, you know, maybe it's not right, but I feel like it might be a good solution and I know what I would do and I, I just, and I give somebody advice or I ask them to do a certain thing, you know, a client source or whatever. And then I see them walk a different direction and go do something that I would never do in a million years. Well, now I would, and I've done everything. Oh, trust me. You can ask me. I've done it probably. Um, but right now in my personal position that I'm in in life, that's not what I would do. Um, and so that, that gets to me, it gets to me and it's really hard for me to walk into facilities that are not like-minded. I'm again, I'm not saying that I know all and I'm the, you know, the best or that I know everything, but it is hard when you have a moral like compass as far as, um, not a moral compass. That sounds whatever. When you have things or, or ways of doing things that you feel like are better, or, or more um, humane or ethical and you see somebody else doing it the other way and you want to help but you don't know how or you can't or you're just not in a position or even the person is highly resistant and fights back or acts like you're trying to tell them they're doing terrible by their horse or all of these things, it, it can be very, very challenging um, emotionally and it can cause a lot of stress. So I just encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast that... Just do the best you can, you know, make little changes, little changes. Just, you know, I get really excited about making a change enough, like where I can get a client to just start feeding their horse, hey, 24 seven, you know, in a slow feeder net, like 
even if they're not doing anything else, that's a huge change to me. For that horse, that's a huge change for that horse, and I take it as a win. Um, they may still be using training methods I don't agree with. They may still be stalling their horse at night. They may, you know, all these different things. But, hey, I made one change. I made an impact for that horse. Um, so this, that's that's a win. And that's an in, too, because once I start seeing changes from that, we I can usually get another change and then another change and another one. And it just builds. And that's how we all make progress. I mean, that's how I was, too. I made these changes a little bit at a time. It didn't just happen overnight that I started TWE and was training with positive reinforcement and all that. Like this has happened over years and years. It's an evolution of changes. It's a, a process that have brought me to where I am. And who knows, the next five, 10 years may be totally different, like, or at least hopefully not totally different, but maybe like, you know, we'll make more changes than it will look different because I'll keep evolving and I'll keep changing. Um, and so I just look to make little changes in that horse's life, little positive interactions, little things that I can make improvements to help for the welfare of that horse. And I encourage you guys to do the same. And hopefully this was really helpful. Um, also, in case you're wondering, this first message or in the beginning of this episode was a voice message from a podcast listener. And if you want to send me a message, you have a question or a topic you'd like to discuss. If you go to, um, I think it's, anchor.fm forward slash the willing equine or you can just search for the willing equine on anchor there's a little button that says send a message and you can record your own message to send me and hopefully i will get to answer your question in a future podcast episode Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more, head to my website, thewillingequine.com. On there, I have a really extensive blog. I'm a very prolific writer. And I also have a an FAQ page. And the FAQ has all kinds of things. It has questions and answers about training and about my training specifically, as well as just general about working with positive reinforcement. There's also sections on there about health and um, behavior. So all of that. I'm also on a lot of different social media platforms, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. So check those out and I'd love to hear from you. So don't hesitate to email or send me a message.